Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Zoning changes to include multifamily housing. You know, they failed in some cities, including Atlanta, some nearby cities as well. But how did the city of Decatur get residents on board? Well, they did pass what's called a middle, a missing middle ordinance. We'll talk all about that. Plus, two years ago now, Microsoft had plans for a campus in Atlanta's Grove Park neighborhood. We are really excited at Microsoft about what we're here to announce today. We're here to say we're investing in Atlanta, we're growing in Georgia, and we're doing so with, I think, a big vision, and we hope a very long-term commitment. Well, that was then, and now is now. This year, the tech giant announced the project would be paused, but some residents say the warning signs might have been there last year when Microsoft actually stopped engaging with the community. Those conversations coming up, but first a check on what's happening at the state capitol. The Georgia House has passed a $32 billion state budget for 2024, as we hear from WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass. The budget includes $4,000 raises for state law enforcement officers and $2,000 increases for other state employees like teachers. The budget also includes millions more for mental and behavioral health and goes beyond fully funding the K-12 funding formula. Here's House Appropriations Chair Matt Hatchett, a Republican. $32 billion doesn't go as far as you think it would. Do I wish we could have done more? Absolutely, yes. But our job as appropriators is to live within our means. The budget passed easily, but Democrats criticized appropriators for not fully expanding Medicaid and for not fully funding the HOPE scholarship, as Governor Kemp requested. Here's Democrat Stacey Evans. We are currently holding $1.9 billion in reserves. Billion with a B. We're required to hold $800 million. We're holding $1.9 billion. That's after the state tried to spend down a multi-billion dollar surplus last fiscal year with tax rebates and property tax relief. State economists expect revenue to drop with years of a recession on the horizon. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. In other news, there was a decrease in Atlanta's homeless population between 2020 and 2022. That was revealed in this week's Atlanta Regional Housing Forum. However, there are still several obstacles. For example, the lack of available and affordable housing to move people from being unsheltered. Catherine Vassell from the nonprofit Partners Partners for Homes spoke during the housing forum. I think um, we're going to have to get more creative as a community and as a homeless system at really being able to figure out how do we how do we tap into this market, um, especially as rents are going up and occupancy rates are at an all time high uh, to be able to access the number and availability of units that we need to be able to house people. Meanwhile, officials from the charity group A Home for Everyone, which is in DeKalb County, say the primary focus this year is housing more displaced individuals and families by helping with first month's rent and utility deposits. The three men found guilty of murdering Ahmaud Arbery are are appealing their federal hate crime convictions. Gregory McMichael, his son Travis McMichael and William Bryan were sentenced last August in federal court for the February 2020 murder of Arbery. Now, the appeals from the McMichaels and Bryan are dozens of pages long and raise questions such as whether the government proved they acted because of Arbery's race or whether the suspects stood to benefit from kidnapping Arbery. The McMichaels are currently serving life sentences in state prison for felony murder and other charges. Bryan was sentenced to 35 years in prison for committing federal hate crimes and other offenses connected with the killing of Arbery. The federal government is expected to reply to their appeals within 30 days. 
The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals will also decide whether there should be an oral argument for the appeals. A new program designed to support low-income Georgia households struggling with mental health issues and the foster care system is reporting improved outcomes, as we hear from Jess Mador. The program is unique in Georgia. It identified families in its Medicaid network at risk for mental or physical health problems and potential foster care separation and provided preventive care, counseling, and case management services. Jason Bearden is president of the nonprofit group CareSource, which runs the program. That mental health crisis or that crisis within the home leads to lack of attention to medical conditions diabetes, congestive heart failure, asthma, really acute episodes of medical conditions. Because of that child neglect and abuse case being open because mom didn't have the resources to pay for child care. Organizers say participants saw a drop in ER visits, fewer foster care placements, and medical cost savings. Jess Mador, WABE News. And you're listening to Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Back in 1988... Wow, I was in high school, I think. The city of Decatur was just the latest among many U.S. cities banning new multifamily housing from duplexes to quadplexes. You'll learn why in just a moment. Over 30 years later now, city planners say two-thirds of Decatur remains as single-family zoning. But last month, the city council adopted an ordinance to bring back so-called, quote, missing middle housing, a move that both advocates and local leaders say is key in addressing the affordable housing crisis. Now, similar proposals have failed in Atlanta after neighborhood pushback. So how did Decatur, the city of Decatur, make this possible? Well, joining me now to talk about all this and how the city brought residents on board is Decatur Mayor Pro Tem, Tony Powers. We were expecting Mayor Garrett, but we uh, she was unable to join us. So we appreciate uh, the Mayor Pro Tem, Tony Powers, taking the time. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Glad to be on board today. Now, I don't know where you were back in 1988. But I'm just going to say this. Are you aware of what went behind the city's reasoning to to block the new multifamily development? Absolutely. So in 98 or 1988, excuse me, I was a year out from getting married and uh, getting ready to buy a house. And uh, unfortunately, the late 80s were a time of change here as well as throughout America. You had a lot of absentee homeowners. And unfortunately, many of the properties in the city of Decatur had become uh, problematic. Uh, You had absentee landlords. And so you got a number of calls about, you know, uh, duplexes and triplexes that had not been attended to. Mm. And so city leaders at that time decided that they uh, were going to address that and try to stabilize our housing stock by only allowing uh, single-family homes to be constructed from that point on. And you're right. I mean, this is this is not something that just has been happening in the last couple of years. I mean, we've seen this, yes, yeah, since the 80s. And, and 80s were an interesting time for America anyway. But you look at where we are now, because now we have this housing crisis, not just here in Atlanta, but throughout the region and, and across the nation. So... What sort of effect did this have on the city's housing stock and affordability back then? So what it did back then was it took out the element of, you know, it didn't eliminate. So people that still had duplexes, triplexes and quads could still you know, be in those homes. We just couldn't construct any new ones. But what you saw was a lot of as we neighborhoods started to gentrify. You saw many of those homes, you know, bought and torn down or converted back to single family. In fact, I can look out my front door and see where there were quads, you mm-hmm. know, from back in the 80s that are now single family homes. And so it limited the access for housing for folks that, you know, may not be 
you know, upper tier earners to, mm-hmm. you know, either they had to rent or they didn't come to Decatur at all. Let me ask you this. If you were looking to buy in the city of Decatur right now, um, not getting all in your business with your finances, but you think you all could find something? It'd be tough. Yeah. I mean, it would really, I, I could not afford to sell my house and move anywhere on my na- in my neighborhood. You know, I think our median price now is up in the 750s to 850s. So it's tough. I mean, if you're a a teacher that's been teaching for five years, there's nothing in the city that you can afford without a trust fund. Yeah, I'm looking at some of these prices right now. And, and you know, if I had a couple of million or something that just was listed, <laughs> just listed today. It's actually one for 3.5, as a matter of fact. So 3.5, where? <laughs> Over by the post office. <laughs> okay, here's something on East Lake Drive for 1.3. Six bedrooms. Okay. <laughs> let's talk about this new ordinance. And let's let's go back, you know, for our listeners who are not familiar with your city of government, because obviously they, they listen, they say, wow, the city of Decatur has a mayor pro tem. You know, they may not be familiar with that. Tell them what that yes. really means. So we have a council manager form of government. So we have five city commissioners and a city manager. The city commissioners uh, hire the city manager so that that she is our only direct report. Uh, Within that structure, uh, the mayor and mayor pro tem are elected each year by the commission. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the theory is if you've got a mayor who only can think about themselves or mayor pro tem who cannot build consensus with their mm-hmm. colleagues, chances are they're only going to keep that job for a year. Mm-hmm. So our form of government has been very effective. Uh, my colleague, Mayor Garrett, has been mayor the entire time I've been on the city commission mm-hmm. for seven for seven plus years, and I've been mayor pro tem for five plus years. And also, Sue, someone just sent me a link to a house. <laughs> Y'all need to stop. It's 3.5. It says, Rose, check this out. It's 3.5. It's on a Pine Tree Drive. Yes, it is. Okay. Yes, it is. Go on and so move over there, Tony. The... Go on and get it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd have to do a little bit extra work. All right. You know, that retirement fund would have to probably get used. So <laughs> let's let's take our listeners through this this new ordinance. You talked about why sure. you needed it. Let's lay it out. What does it exactly detail? So, you know, one of the things that I think very early on that sort of got lost in the conversation was it, them being affordable. I think you have two very different issues in play here. Mm-hmm. You have an affordability issue, mm-hmm. but we also have this missing middle. And early on, people that were against the proposal were really against it, saying it wouldn't solve affordability issues. And I agree, it's not going to, ass- to solve those affordability issues. What it does give us is a price point that may be north of 500, maybe north of 600, but it's a point that currently does not exist in new construction. So, you know, right now, I could probably go online and find five or six homes that may be in the 450 to 550 range, but let's face it, they're teardowns. And so that's 550 to get you the dirt to get you started. And what hopefully this will create is something that whether it's a duplex, a triplex, or a quad, it gives you a unit that it's new construction and it's somewhere between, you know, say five hundred and seven hundred thousand dollars. So that missing middle income bracket, which you know we've you, heard about. You, well, I just want to be clear. You think that is for the the missing middle, that five hundred yes. to seven? Really? Well, it's a price point that does not exist currently in our city, and you know it's going to be different for every city. Yeah. You know, and we can get into. <laughs> yeah, you're right you know, about the, that. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to we can get into the semantics about what the income brackets are and everything else. But, you know, when you're starting with dirt that's worth, let's say, for all intents and purposes, half a million dollars, we're already not affordable. But it gives us a price point in which maybe it's a that middle component. Can you understand someone listening saying, well, how do you. Can you take this further? How do y'all really think this addresses affordable housing? Now, if you're saying that all the folks that live in the city of Decatur, most of them, this is that five hundred thousand and seven is is a bargain. I guess I don't know where y'all work. I don't know your income. I don't know what's in your bank accounts. But 
Are you saying that that, that works, that that's actually going to solve? A, a... No, it's not going to solve it. It's one more piece. So let's step back a little bit. Yeah, so let's, let's... prior to this, we had a carrot and stick model with uh, affordable housing. Mm -hmm. We would offer uh, builders, developers an incentive to make some of their units affordable. And mm -hmm. many cases, it didn't yield the results that we were looking for. And so two years ago, uh, we had a affordable housing forum summit. We uh, launched a task force and they gave us some concrete sort of steps in order to help us get to affordability. And one of the steps was creating a mandatory inclusionary zoning ordinance, which we approved about a year and a half ago. And what that says is for every five units, one of them has to be affordable. So okay, we so realize the carrot. Let me stop you because I want to be very clear so our listeners understand. You are not taught you you're not you're talking about duplexes and quadplexes and triplexes, right? You're not talking about a single family new build, correct? Or am I off here? So we're so the affordable side of it was a broader picture with say apartments or any bigger development. Okay. But, you know, this particular ordinance is only looking at duplexes and triplexes and quads. Okay. But there is a component of the inclusionary zoning ordinance that says if you build a quadruplex and you want to build an ADU or something out back, mm -hmm. if there are five units, one of them will be affordable. So there's the piece of affordability in that zoning to help us with the with the quadruplex okay. in particular. I think that was important to bring out because I've got a couple of emails and folks giving me that little side eye emoji. So I understand. I'm, so I'm glad that you 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 were able to to take that further. So you didn't get did you get much? You said you got some pushback. So I'm curious, was this also for those neighborhoods that said, well, will this somehow in, impact our our property value or, you know, what what were the concerns of residents? Yeah. So we some pushback would be an understatement. We got a, we had a lot of conversations. So the one thing that we tried to make sure that we heard every voice. So there were a series of, and our planning person at the time would hold neighborhood meetings. She would go to folks' homes. She would try to get in front of neighborhood associations to at least get the word out that we're going to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, by law, we had to have two public hearings, we actually took it a step further and had multiple, uh, one with our planning commission and then uh, three with our city commission. So, mm -hmm. and many of those meetings went well. In fact, we had a meeting that went to almost two in the morning. Okay. So we wanted to really hear and then take that feedback and try to craft an ordinance that looked a little bit better and responded to some of the feedback that we gotten from both sides, folks that were for and folks that folks that were that were against the new ordinance. There were some concerns about traffic and, and what was called, quote, blanket zoning changes. How did that you all, how did you all address that? Well, one of the things that makes it difficult when you are only a city of a little over 4.5 square miles. Mm -hmm. We don't have the landmass to give us the extra room to try this out in certain places. One of the things that initially, as we develop and craft the ordinance, we uh, are going to limit the number of uh, new applications to three per school district. So mm. 15 total permits would be issued in the uh, first cycle, which goes about uh, six months. So you're limiting the number of building permits? In the first six months until we can have a little bit more data in which and bring the city and all mm -hmm. uh, development partners up to speed. Real quickly, as we begin to wrap up, I'm curious, with these new builds, are there are you all also mandating other provisions that deal with the type of structure, like do they have to meet the some size limitations or anything like that? Yes. Yeah, so everything's going to be uh, whatever whatever limitations or provisions for single family. Those apply to duplexes, triplexes, and quads, including mm -hmm. uh, stormwater management, uh, tree ordinance, mm -hmm. and uh, lot coverage. So any 
sort of checks and balances in single family, those same checks and balances will be for uh, duplexes, triplexes, and quadruplexes. I'm curious, have you heard from developers? Not as much as you would imagine. Yeah. The one thing that I hear from my developer friends, and they all sort of say this, you know, tongue in cheek, that it's sort of a pain in the butt to build indicator. So, you know, this is just another <laughs> layer of. They send that to that you in a text. It's a pain in the butt. Oh no, no, no! I, I get that in my business all the time. So, but it's okay. I mean, I, I think we have some great community partners, and I'm looking forward to you know, getting some positive outlooks and outcomes from this. So look, you, you admit, and we all know that the city of Decatur is just yay so big. So you're right. This won't solve the affordable housing issues, but it is, do you feel like this is a blueprint that other cities might be able to engage their residents to get them on board with multi and listen, Atlanta is so, so big. Cause every neighborhood, you know, you should see the emails of folks. Stop picking on my neighbor. I'm not picking on your neighborhood, but you know, it's like not in my backyard. Everyone mm-hmm. wants everything to fit their neighborhood. So if you could, if you're right. going to offer any advice to neighboring cities that are dealing with the single family and, and multifamily zoning issues, what do you tell them? You know, I say the one thing is, you know, listen to what people have to say. You know, the one thing that I could say at the end of the day, while we might not all have agreed on what was the best thing for our community, we did it in a way in which every voice was valued and every opinion was valued. And there were no name calling, you know, no hard feelings for the most part, that they were very civil meetings, something that you don't see on the national So you stand by that? Really engage. You stand by that you all felt like everyone had, uh, I hate saying seat at the table, such a cliche, but you feel like everyone, their their input was, was absorbed, what they were heard from. Yes. All right. Tony Powers is Mayor Pro Tem of City of Decatur. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rose. Thanks for having us on. All right. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Two years ago, Microsoft President Brad Smith made the big announcement. The corporation was expanding its tech footprint in Atlanta and specifically in the Grove Park neighborhood. We are really excited at Microsoft about what we're here to announce today. We're here to say we're investing in Atlanta, we're growing in Georgia, and we're doing so with, I think, a big vision and we hope a very long-term commitment. The biggest thing that we're here to talk about today is the fact that Microsoft has purchased the 90 acres at Quarry Yards and Quarry Hills. This is a really exciting thing for us because it means it will be the site of a future Microsoft campus. It'll be a part of our home here in the Atlantic community. Well, that's now on pause. Earlier this year, Microsoft announced it would pause construction of the massive Westside campus, which was totally unexpected by a lot of folks, including Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens. It caught us a little bit by surprise that uh, Microsoft is going to pause their development. I've had a you know brief conversation with them about, no, we're still committed to Atlanta. We still are committed to that location near the Bankhead Martyr Station. And I've also encouraged them and almost, you know, downright, you know, told them that they must continue to do community engagement. Community engagement. We'll get to that in a moment. Microsoft says they're reevaluating workspace dynamics with how employees are working, which is one of the reasons. Now, Closer Look reached out to Microsoft for an update, but we were referred to an earlier statement, which includes, quote, Microsoft still has the intention to make 25 percent of the property available for community needs. Close quote. That's still the aim, but it's not a commitment. And even though folks were wondering what will happen in the area now. Well, Anissa Farrell chairs Neighborhood Planning Unit J, and she joins me now. Anissa, are you with me? I am. Thank you for having me, Rose. Thank you. Let's begin by going back, because when this announcement was made at Microsoft President Brad Smith, and he said this was one of his top priorities. Before we decide what to build and how to build it, We really want to listen to and talk with and learn from people here in the Atlantic community. Now, basically creating a community engagement process um, 
there were meetings. Did that happen? Um, yes, that did happen. Myself and some other leaders within the community served on the Microsoft Advisory um, Committee um, to just kind of elaborate on what the needs of the community is and what the expectation in this partnership was and to collaborate with some transparency on the development of that um, 98 acres of land that they invested in and the 25% that will be designated for the uh, West Side community. So there was some collaboration. Mm -hmm. There was some um, surveys done within the community to kind of give a broader view of what we expected and what we were, what our vision was for the community. Because as you know, our community has been a desert mm -hmm. for over about 15 to 20 years. So that brought on a lot of excitement to see a company of this brand, major brand, to want to invest in a community that was uh, predominant Black. Mm -hmm. uh, we wanted to make sure that, you know, we were getting the same opportunities that other cities that they had invested in. So you had these community engagement <clears throat> meetings. This was in 2021. Microsoft rep representatives were present. Were they present at all these community meetings? And, and how long did these community meetings and, and engagement, how long did that continue? Um, I think in 2021, we probably met about five to six times uh, with all the community leaders from the MPU chairs, the neighborhood community, and some small business to kind of, you know, talk out some things and kind of see where they were driving this blueprint mm -hmm. um, that they presented to the community. So we met about five to six times. We actually had an opportunity to go to their um, their home office, which is in Atlantic Station, to take a tour of the um, facility and to also to do a a digital view of what our community would transition to and what we had the opportunity to do with them. So there was a lot of communication with them and they did have representatives from uh, Microsoft present. Now I've been in that building near Atlantic station. It's nice, right? It is. It was a shocker. I mean, I'm in IT, so I took advantage of that uh, opportunity to view the um, facility. And I was just excited that something of this magnitude was coming into our community, you know, and can broaden the community from a technical side as well as, you know, cultivating our community. Mm. Let's move to 2022. Did these in meetings continue? Um, the meetings were on and off. Um, they were in, uh, invited to the MPU meetings, um, you know, to be on the agenda to provide us an update or where we were going to provide us a clear view and understanding of what the blueprint will look like, what they are trying to, what they vision for that 98 acres of land. Um, and then that kind of dropped off. The representatives were not participating uh, we tried to engage them to get an update myself, um, who is really strongly an advocate for my community. And my um, top priorities are my students and seniors. So I was advocating for everyone in MPUJ. Mm -hmm. And those questions was also asked, you know, where are we going after this? We're not getting any feedback and we're not getting any support or response. So when, so I want to be very clear for our listeners, if we can, this was in Early 2022, middle, when do you think it the communication declined or decreased in, until, um, until you got to not hearing anything? Um, right after August 2022, that is when it majorly dropped. Um, there was some on and off. Um, a group of the leaders in the community decided to collaborate together to develop a, a documentation, a one-pager telling them, uh, and just sharing our vision of what we wanted from them in this partnership. And as I said, we were actually looking forward to um, working with a major brand like Microsoft, um, the opportunities that, you know, it can present to the community. So in that transition, there was just a drop. We did a um, town hall meeting um, at one of the schools in the community that actually allowed the community to engage and ask questions. There, we invited Microsoft to come, but there was no representative there to give us any feedback. And we realized that there was a problem. When So when you heard, when you heard the, the news like everybody else, and then I guess you heard it through the media, uh, were you surprised then based on what you just told me? Um, me being a person in leadership and in cybersecurity and advocating for the community, I kind of 
speculated um, without no communication from August up until the time that they made their announcement. But I still wanted to have hope and possibility mm -hmm. that they were going to prove me different. Um, I was surprised because the phone started ringing the day before it hit the news that this is what is going on. And I was, un, you know, very disbelieved. But I was disappointed because I was they were making a major impact in our community. So I was hoping that there was no delay and not a denial in this relationship. Anissa, did you all have a person, a contact? Was there one person from the Microsoft side that was leading these community engagement meetings? Was it a committee? Did you just have to send an email to like the PR person? Were you able to reach um, out? There, to, go ahead. There was. There was a point of contact um, that we were able to communicate uh, with. And she was, you know, very transparent, you know, trying to keep us abreast of what was going on. I just think that the people that we were interacting with just didn't have the answer because, they, you know, with the leadership, it goes a little higher up. Sure. So the information was not able to be very clear or transparent for the community. And we were just getting, you know, frustrated, you know, no interaction, no feedback. You know, we were providing them what they asked us for, a survey and, you know, a supportive document to kind of drive what the needs are for that property. You know, when this announcement was made, you know, we, we already we saw home prices values skyrocket. That was an immediate impact. Um, what are you seeing now? What are you hearing from the, the community in terms of folks being concerned about, you know, what's going to happen to to this area? Well, the West Side is a resilient community filled with so many leaders and opportunities. And uh, we have a lot of pillars of the community. Those are our seniors who were foot soldiers in our community that are truly impacted, been living in their community between 50 to 75 years. You mm -hmm. have one individual, 103 years old, living here. So I think the surprise of when they made their decision to come into the community, it was the impact because the taxes went up, the cost of living, you know, mm -hmm. gentrification. And then for them to pull out, they left us in a position that we're still in that same situation where now the, the taxes are still going to remain there. The cost mm -hmm. of living are going to be there and their income is not going in, going to increase mm -hmm. um, because you made a decision to walk away. Um, so we have seniors that are struggling with their mortgages you know, being able to stay in their house and they're making decisions whether they pay their taxes or pay for their prescriptions. So that's where our community is. What have you all heard from your city council representatives? I know Mayor Dickens has been saying that this is a priority for him. Has anyone come out to the community and talked to you all about this from the city of Atlanta government? Not at this time. No one has, you know, came to the MPU meeting to give us an update. Um, I will say that Mayor Dickens has been very transparent, you know, publicly um, saying that he has asked Microsoft to continue to engage the community, you know, while they're trying to still strategize and make some decisions. And I support, you know, his response. You know, I know that he is a um, mayor of his word. He's going to make sure that we are receiving the resources that we need. But at the end of the day, our community is hurting. You know, people are struggling. There's no place to live now. You know, mm -hmm. people are needing places to go. And Anissa, this also goes back to something that I ask everyone when it comes to these developer deals. And, and, and maybe Microsoft is so big that they don't really care about incentives. But listen, everyone loves a good tax break or, or whatever. But again, those and a binding agreement with the communities that these developers want to come in and do X, Y, Z. Do you feel like this is an example of why we need to have something in place, um, particularly if the, the developer pulls out? I mean, sometimes you can't control the market, obviously, but the developer mm -hmm. pulls out. You know, should there be some type of binding agreement for communities like yours when something like this happens? I think so. Um, if we can get, you know, city council to come up with the documentation legislation that would support that. I think it would give us a better opportunity to try to navigate when these type of situations are presented. Um, as you stated earlier, you know, when they pulled out, it's out of our control, but yet and still the families that are impacted are left in a situation where they have no place to go. Mm -hmm. So we need to be very transparent and develop some kind of supportive document. A good neighborhood agreement uh, would be even suffice if we can utilize that 
to show that, you know, you're coming into the community, Mm -hmm. but are you certain you're going to stay in the community and how are you going to support our community if there's another situation similar to this? Now, Microsoft says they still have every intention to make 25 percent of that property available for community needs. And they say that's Mm-hmm. They 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 wouldn't make a commitment, but they're committed to the intention, which are two different things. You and I both know that. <laughs> so, how optimistic are you about not just the intention, but the actual commitment from Microsoft? I think we are. I think the community is still a little shaken and torn right now, and they, you know, it's trust. It all is about trust. You know, when you meet someone, when they show their side, you know, how they're going to treat you then if you're not as transparent, it's going to be hard for the community to trust again, you know, because we were just strongly excited about Mm -hmm. this opportunity for them to come in and change and rebrand the community that has so much history. So I think they're going to have to really, you know, engage the community and better yet show us Mm -hmm. what you're willing to do to make this a good partnership and, you know, impact individual lives a little different than what you did at the beginning. Do you think Microsoft will even continue with the development? They hadn't even broken any ground, but I mean, do you think this is even going to be a Microsoft campus in the future? I think they're going to find some kind of way to utilize that property, how they're going to do it. I can't speak on that, but just in uh, conversation that as the mayor said, they still are committed to working with the city of Atlanta and in this community. So I'm going to, you know, lean on that, statement that they are still going to um, engage and support the community. Uh, But I think they did need some time to strategize, you know, what it is they can and cannot do. All right. Anissa Farrell, Chair's Neighborhood Planning Unit J. Thank you so much. Take time. I really appreciate it. We're going to stay on top of this as we've been. But thank you all. Thank you. Have a good evening. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The deadly police killing of Tyree Nichols sparked national outrage. But, you know, we all know it was also aligned with continuous calls for policing reforms, whatever that looks like. We've had so many conversations on this program, so many different solutions. I put that in air quotes, solutions. 29-year-old Nichols died on January 10th, three days after being brutally beaten by five Memphis police officers. The incident was captured on various video formats. Now, all five officers have been fired and have pled not guilty to charges of secondary murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct, and official oppression. My next guest, Alexis Carteron, is a professor of law and director of the Constitutional Rights Clinic at Rutgers University. And she holds the opinion that there's very little lawmakers can do to bring about police reform. We talk about a national on a national level. And it was the focus of an opinion piece published in The Conversation, it's a nonprofit independent news organization that publishes articles written by academic experts. And Professor joins me now. Professor Carteron, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. You know, before we get to your opinion piece, I want to get to something else that just happened this week. And that was with the Department of Justice revealing their investigation into the Louisville Police Department and the findings. And I'm just going to read some of it. It says, look, our investigation found that the police department and city government failed to adequately protect and serve the people of Louisville, breached the public's trust, discriminated against black people through unjustified stops, searches and arrests use excessive force, subjecting people to unlawful strikes, tasings, canine bites. It goes on and on. But I know when you read this, this was not new to you, that this was found in a police department. Yeah, sadly, it seems very familiar that we have a very sad case, a police killing that a lot of people are very understandably upset about. And then when the Justice Department goes and looks more deeply at what's happening with that police department, they find a lot of problems. It actually reminds me very, very much of 
what happened in Ferguson Mm -hmm. um, after the killing of Michael Brown, what happened in Baltimore after the death of Freddie Gray, um, that even if the officers in those cases were not found to have violated criminal laws or to have um, violated a person's civil rights, that the police departments in those cases were still rife with problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it really just goes to show how much work we have to do on American policing. When you talk about how much more work we need to do in American policing, you'll have folks who say, look, you know, we need federal oversight. We need federal provisions and policies. You have folks over here that say, well, no, each local district needs to handle this and there needs to be more accountability with the leadership within the departments. And there are folks that are kind of in the middle. There is no one solution. But you say if we're talking about federal reforms, it's nearly impossible. Is that what you contend? Yeah, I mean, I truthfully think that probably both federal and local attention needs to be paid to policing. Um, The problem with the federal laws that have been talked about that haven't been passed yet, like the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, is that the federal government doesn't actually have the authority to directly regulate all American police departments. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and that's different than federal law enforcement agencies. So a good example is chokeholds. So we obviously have seen, unfortunately, some very high profile deaths related to chokeholds like Eric Garner in New York City. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, obviously there was an outcry about that as there should have been, but the federal government can't say to all local police departments, you may no longer use chokeholds. And that's because regulation of police departments usually happens at the state and local level. Mm -hmm. Instead, what the federal government can do and what those in Congress who are pushing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act are attempting to do is to say, we'll make something like a ban on chokeholds a condition of receiving federal money. So they're basically saying to state and local police departments, if you want federal money for policing to support your police department, you have to abide by these conditions. Mm -hmm. And so they can make a ban on chokeholds one of those conditions, but they can't directly tell every American police department what to do. And what that means is that by definition, with legislation like this, there are going to be holes. There are going to be police departments that say, you know what, I don't want your federal money. I want to run my police department. I don't want to abide by the conditions that you're imposing on me. Um, and so that's the thing about the federal legislation. Um, it certainly seems like it could add some value and it could be effective, but it's not a one size fits all solution. And in your op-ed, you also talk about for those who are looking for the nation's high court, the Supreme Court, to intervene in here, there is very little that they can do to ban or, or mandate how local police policies and practices should should be occurring. The Supreme Court really doesn't seem to have much of an appetite to regulate police misbehavior. So when it comes to the use of force, things like chokeholds, the Fourth Amendment, which bans unreasonable searches and seizures, is the main source of legal authority in the U.S. Constitution. Um, But the Supreme Court has mostly been pretty hands off with police departments. Um, You know, so they have said things like there's the quote unquote, fleeing felon rule um, that stemmed from a case actually in Memphis um, in the 1980s, where there was a teenager who was alleged to have committed a burglary, and he was running away, um, clearly, you know, no longer a threat to anyone, Mm -hmm. and a police officer shot him in the back, and the Supreme Court said, okay, that violates the Fourth Amendment. You can't Mm -hmm. shoot someone who's fleeing and clearly doesn't pose a threat. Um, But beyond that, the rules that the Supreme Court has laid out are pretty vague. Um, they basically say that uses of force have to be reasonable. Um, And when you use a vague term like reasonable, um, people have all kinds of differing opinions on what that means. Um, So the Supreme Court really has not shown an appetite to get in the game of regulating police behavior in a really serious way. You know, we've had a task force on 21st century policing. We've had the president's task force on that, whatever it's supposed to look like. We we have legislation that folks want passed relate to George Floyd and it depending on who's in the office (laughs) in the White House at the time this goes back and forth and depending on who's in control of Congress this goes back and forth and and I know in in the six and seven minutes we have left you can't lay out what it looks like to get it right but where does should it begin can you can you give our listeners some insight if it can't be with the federal some type of federal legislation here then where should people look? I do think that 
local and state oversight of police departments is really incredibly important. Um, you know, very often police departments are making policies behind closed doors. Um, a lot of people aren't really paying close attention and local government oversight can be a really valuable tool. So, you know, local governments perhaps can, depending on the, the state and depending on the locality, they might be able to insist that the police department do something like ban the use of chokeholds. Um, they might be able to insist, for example, that they not use no-knock warrants like what happened mm -hmm. in Brianna Taylor's case. Um, and so I would really strongly suggest that people start trying to pay attention at the local level to what their police department is doing. Was there anything in the Obama-led 21st century policing reform, the recommendations, was there anything in there that you felt could have been or should have really been been a guiding, a guideline for, for all of this? Yeah, absolutely. I think there were some strong recommendations in that task force um, final report. But of course, the key word is recommendation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, they couldn't mandate that the thousands and thousands of state and local police departments around the country, um, you know, do anything in particular. So looking at things like um, refining use of force policies so they don't just say vague things like officers have to use um, a reasonable level of force in response to a particular situation. Mm -hmm. um, that's a really valuable recommendation. There's also a recommendation in there um, about engaging with people. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about how horrible their interactions are with police officers, that they feel disrespected, sometimes that they're cursed at, um, you know, that they're really treated in poor ways. And obviously that doesn't do anything to um, enhance trust in mm -hmm. law enforcement and sometimes can really make bad situations worse. Um, so there were some recommendations about that. Um, so I certainly think that a number of those recommendations were valuable, um, but the really hard question is, are police departments going to follow them? Um, are they inclined to consider those recommendations seriously? Because the truth of the matter is we've had commission after commission <laughs> after commission in the United States. Um, and so commissions are, you know, not necessarily a bad idea, but I think we'd be fooling ourselves if we thought that commissions were the answer. And I, I remember that, and I had to look it up real quickly because I want to make sure I said it correctly, but there's a line there when, from the, the Obama Obama's uh, 21st Century Policing Task Force that really just sticks with me and it says, quote, but we know that true change can only come from the field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a saying that people use in police uh, circles, which is that culture eats policy for breakfast. And it's the idea that even if you have the right rules on the books, that what really matters is how the officers understand that policy and understand how it applies to them and understand what kind of consequences there might be for not following it. Um, this is something that's been really striking to me in the tragic case of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, that it seems like the Memphis Police Department, from what I've read, adopted a lot of really valuable reforms. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, for Tyree Nichols, they weren't enough to save him. And I think it begs the question of what's going on inside the Memphis Police Department and what the culture is inside that department, because policy alone is not enough to fix things. Well, and when we talk about policy with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, uh, is that if it does indeed can lead to anything, your optimism there? I, um, I want to be hopeful that if the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act ever is enacted, that it will make a difference. Um, I mean, it is, it's really striking that in 2020, we had obviously this horrific murder that so many of us watched on video. We had these massive, massive protests with hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, taking to the streets to protest what they saw as this egregious violence. And Congress hasn't been able to get it done. Um, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed in the House. It did not make it even to a vote in the Senate. And it really makes you wonder, uh, you know, what's going on that our national government can't get it together to enact legislation to prevent those kinds of horrible deaths. Um, so, you know, we'll see. Um, I wonder if this time around it's plausible that um, they'll really, you know, want a win here. They'll really want to do something. You know, maybe it makes a difference. President Biden has certainly express support for serious police reform. Um, so we'll all have to stay tuned. 
And finally, Professor, the work that you all do, uh, you are the director of the Constitutional Rights Clinic at Rutgers Mm -hmm. University. Tell listeners briefly what it's about. Sure. So um, the Constitutional Rights Clinic is part of the clinical program at Rutgers Law School. And the idea behind a law school clinical program is that students are working on real cases and projects with their professor. So instead of just, you know, studying the law, they're actually working on real cases and real projects and getting to write briefs, sometimes getting to put together lawsuits. Um, And so some of the work that we've done in my clinic has been related to policing. Um, For example, we weighed in on a case about a civilian complaint review board in Newark, New Jersey, Mm -hmm. and got to do a lot of great research about the value of civilian oversight. Um, And so it's really a pleasure to get to feel like the students are working on real things and getting to weigh in on important cases. Alexis Carteron is professor of law and director of the Constitutional Rights Clinic at Rutgers University. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. We'll have you back on the program. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson and Daniel Razel. Tiffany Griffith is our supervising producer. Our engineer is Sawyer Vanderwerf. And a reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. It's free, so subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like and all of our great podcasts. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. Have a great weekend. I'm Rose Scott. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. 